Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. Hey, this is our last week in Exodus. I'm going to miss that video so much, man. I love bumping my way up here. Um, Exodus chapter 12. Man, this has been a really good series for us, an incredible time in God's word for our church. Um, I'm going to miss it. I don't know what I'm going to do to celebrate. Might like finally cut my beard or something like that. Something. But I told you at the beginning of this whole thing that Exodus is going to put a truth front and center for us that the most important thing in our lives, in your life, is what you think about God. That's it. The most important thing in your life, everything else is going to revolve around, be changed by what you think about God. And we have seen that to be true over the past, this is week 14, over the past three and a half months. Y'all, we have seen, as we've seen more of God together, kind of submitted ourselves and lifted the eyes of our hearts up, man, God has brought some change even into our church in that short time window. We have seen people, hey, let's praise God for a second. We saw several people give their lives to Christ last weekend during Passover and communion and that invitation to the table. It's awesome. We've seen people, this is why I said we're going to take next steps together because we've seen so many people take next steps, giving their lives to Christ, being baptized. Some have taken steps like repentance and reconciliation and some broken relationships and you've shared with me. You've shared the gospel with your friends and some of you are even considering full-time ministry and what's um, happening. Some of you full-time missions overseas. What's happening is as you see God for who he is, he's changing you. And he's changing every aspect of your life and he will continue to do that. And this whole series in many ways has been building to today, which makes sense. It's a narrative. We're going through it. After all, this book is called Exodus, but our whole time studying it, we've still been in Egypt, right? Well, we haven't exited yet today. That is what's going to happen. We're going to see them go out. This, of course, we're not going to get the last like 20 chapters of Exodus today or something like that. Uh, We're going to finish chapter 12 today, and that'll conclude part one of uh, this series that we'll pick up again probably in 2023, uh, because I just don't want to, I want to make our way through it in a way I don't want to rush it or anything like that. And we'll be heading to the New Testament of Philippians uh, next week, which I'm pumped for because this has all been pointing towards Jesus. The book of Philippians is going to look back on Jesus, right? We're going to see why in the world he matters so much for our life. So Finally, today, we see the people of God heading out. And I got to warn you, today, what you think about God will be pressed to the greatest limit yet in our series. Because you're going to be confronted with the same God doing three very different things that could stretch your view, and I hope does stretch your view of God. In our passage, we're going to see God being a judge. Then we're going to see God being a provider. And then we're going to see God being merciful to the outsider. 
And I'm telling you, the God of the Bible is all three and they do not contradict one another. And pretty much every person who's on a journey to try and get to know God a little more, the God of the Bible, has some trouble with one or maybe all three of these. And in fact, y'all, there are entire brands of Christianity that will cater exclusively to one of those three aspects of God. They'll try and make God look the way we want him to look. For some, God is always just the righteous judge who's raining down his wrath on the sinners of the world. And you can build a whole brand of Christianity around that. Maybe some of you are coming out of that. For some, God is the provider who's just waiting to prosper you if you'll just believe a little bit more. And I know you don't have that thing that you really want yet, but just wait and just have faith and God's gonna give it to you one day. And for some, he's mainly the God of mercy, the God of love. God is love, man. He's not angry with you. He just loves you. He's not going to punish you. He just wants to put his arm around you and comfort you just right where you are, just like you are, right? And when you start to hear them back, these brands back to back, it starts to sound a little bit like the uh, Ricky Bobby dinner table, right? Like I like to think of my Jesus wearing a tuxedo t-shirt because, you know, he's formal, but he's here to party. Y'all listen, that's a guilty pleasure movie. I could pretty much quote that whole scene. Um, But here's the problem. All three of those brands of Christianity, here's what you and and I know if you've been around Christianity at all, you know that all three of them can find a verse or two to back up their claim. And what I wanna offer to you today is that the one true God will not be confined to how we brand him. And maybe recently he's been shattering some of your categories of who he is and that's why you're here. I hope so. I mean, I'm just going to show you three, those three aspects of God today because they're on display in the second half of chapter 12 in the book of Exodus. So I'm going to show you those three and I'm going to try and answer some questions. But the point in all three of them is to show you the glory of God and call you to your next step in light of who he is. God the, our outline is God the judge, God the provider, God the merciful. And the thread that ties them all together is that he is displaying his glory in our world so that we can know the one true God. That's it. In all three, he's displaying his glory so that we can know the one true God. Now I gotta warn you, we begin with God the judge and it's not pleasant. If you were with us last week, we're just picking up right where we left off um, last week, okay? God announced a 10th plague would come to Pharaoh, the death of all the firstborn sons of Egypt. Doesn't matter your social standing. There's no economic class when it comes to your standing before God. We said it last week, God has family, God has enemies. There's no middle ground. Regardless of whether you're a son of Pharaoh or son of a prisoner, you have equal standing before God. You also have equal opportunity, we saw last week, to be spared the judgment righteously sent on your sin and the way you are spared is the blood of the lamb. Several weeks ago, I told you, before we got into the plagues, God actually told Moses to warn Pharaoh that this 10th plague would come if he didn't change. That this is where it was headed. In fact, Exodus 4, I'll bring it back to you. Verses 22 and 23. God says to Moses, you'll say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. That was Exodus 4. Several weeks ago in our study, Pharaoh hasn't listened. In fact, we saw last week, Moses storms out after announcing the 10th plague. 
because he knows how hard-hearted Pharaoh is. He's mad about it. And he knows that this is gonna bring death to many. Well, now the 10th plague is here. Exodus 12, start in verse 29. I'll read you verse 29 and 30. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house. You can read that, a family, that can also be translated, without someone dead. Let me speak to the context of this and then to how it lands on us. See, our narrative is coming full circle. You remember what, what Pharaoh did in Exodus chapter one, one of our first weeks? A different Pharaoh, yes, but nonetheless, Pharaoh ordered all the sons of Israel to be killed. So the Egyptians obeyed him and they went and threw a generation of Israeli boys into the Nile. Now, what's interesting here, though, is God doesn't tell Israel to go and do the same, even though Israel um, outnumbered the Egyptians. No, he himself executes vengeance. That becomes a theme for God's people. Sometimes he calls them to go to war, but there are several times in Israel's history, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, where he's gonna call Israel to take up arms and then just stand there while he executes vengeance. And that's to remind them time and again that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Verse 31, he summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out. This is by the way, it's Pharaoh summoning Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites and go, get out, go worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you ask and leave. And then look at this and also bless me. Now, as God said, this is the plague that breaks Pharaoh. In fact, it breaks him so much. He moves from being in opposition to the God of Moses to saying, as you leave, "I, I want you to bless me. I want your God that I have rejected and I have fought against for so long to bless me. There's a shift that has happened in Pharaoh. It's only, it's very temporary. Maybe it's brought on by this wave of grief, but y'all, the last time a Pharaoh, I told you this narrative's come in full circle. Last time a Pharaoh had received a blessing from an Israelite was when Jacob blessed Pharaoh's house as the people of God came in to live in Egypt 430 years ago. That's Genesis 47. This request for blessing by an Egyptian king to an Israelite leader, what's happening here, and Moses is showing us that it's bookending their time in Egypt. It's time to go. Verse 33, the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. Now that makes sense. Mass hysteria is filling this whole region. In the middle of the night, y'all, wailing, like going outside of your house. Not only is it happening in your house, but you walk outside for a moment, a a quick breath, and there's wailing that you can hear throughout the whole region. Some scholars say families who had heard the announcement that this plague is coming were likely awake and were keeping their children awake to keep watch over them. Can you imagine this? Seeing them in an instant at midnight die? If you've ever been in the room when a child dies, if you never have been, I don't wish it on you. It is the worst, it's it's haunting. It's the worst feeling in the world. This is a difficult plague. And of course, everything has gotten unsteady for them all in a moment. 
and they don't know what's going to happen. They're wondering what's next. They, got, they just want these people that are causing this out as fast as they can. So, verse 34, the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on the shoulders. This is why, by the way, unleavened bread becomes so important uh, on going to the Passover observance. It's because it's the bread of remembrance of this hurried meal that they ate as they were leaving. All right, before we get into the next verses, this is God the judge enacting this plague. I wanna take a moment and do a little bit of, this is almost like preaching no-no, but I'm gonna do it and you're gonna hang, all right? I wanna do almost like a sermon inside of a sermon right here. And I want to try and answer the question, is God cruel? Because this is the question that gets asked about this. It's difficult. It's tragic what just happened, what we just read. Verse 29, the Lord struck the firstborns of Egypt. That's why many skeptics do not believe. Why they struggle, why they rail against Christianity. Why would this God that you claim to be loving, remember that's another one of those other aspects of God they major on. Why would this God that you claim to be loving kill children? Why would he be so cruel? And can the Christians in the room be honest for a second? This one is hard for a lot of us too. We do not ever apologize for scripture ever. Scripture is this holy, perfect word of God, but we recognize that we are still working out our faith in fear and trembling. So I just want to say to you, Christian, if you struggle with this, you don't have to hide in shame and embarrassment. I I encourage you, do not shy away from this moment. In fact, the enemy would want you to hide away and in shame start to doubt God. And isolation and shame and doubt God, that's how people fall away. Instead of bringing their questions humbly and openly into the community of faith and wrestling with them, work out your faith in fear and trembling. And I love it. I've been doing this with, there's a member of our church. I've been doing this with through email, talking about this very thing. And um, I know there's several conversations that will happen out of this. Let's do this together. But let me say, I'm gonna tell you five things that I see in here um, that I hope will help us understand God the judge a little more, understand the 10th plague a little more, okay? Again, a little bit of a excursus sermon inside a sermon, but I think we need it. First y'all, listen, God is good even in judgment. Calling God cruel would be ascribing motive to him. The atheist who claims this is evidence that the God of the Bible is cruel is claiming that, that that's to claim that God delights in this, that he enjoys the suffering of his creation. To claim that is to claim to know the very mind of God, to start ascribing to him attitudes of indifference or sadistic pleasure that would be needed in order to define him as cruel. This isn't being clever and thoughtful. That's your pride talking. To say God is cruel leaves no room for him to be both a judge and to be good. And scripture tells us he's good. The story of Job always comes to me in this. He lost all that he had at God's very clear allowance and awareness. And yet he worshiped God as good. God doesn't owe us an explanation. That's the hardest thing of all. The longer I walk with God, the more I'm able to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's Job 1.21. And I promise you, you're not gonna develop that kind of faith in the moment of crisis. That's not where that comes. God might be gracious to you and do that, but most of the time it doesn't come there. You need to develop that faith now 
in the everyday walk with God. Otherwise, you may not find it when the hard moment comes. It's kind of like a, uh, a hitter. Baseball season has started up. Coach Spence was in full form yesterday on the baseball fields. Here's what I know. Um, a hitter doesn't learn to hit a curveball in the championship game. Hitter learns to hit a curveball in practice where his coach shows him that the, it actually comes out of the pitcher's hand a different way, that you actually can see the ball spinning a different way. Now let's try it time after time, rep after rep, rep after rep. And then he identifies it when it comes in the moment. Y'all, we need to be walking with the Lord in the everyday so we can see his goodness and faithfulness even when the curveballs of life come. Y'all, I know that we actually, do, see when we talk about God as judge, we gotta recognize we actually, do crave God's judgment over sin. But we look at this and we say, wait, God killed innocent people. Who says they're innocent? We don't know their hearts or actions. And before we say, yeah, but not even one innocent child, let me remind you of your faith. I told you days gonna be filled with things. I don't know that you wanna hear, but I gotta tell you. It's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which leads me right to the second thing about this. We answer to God. He does not answer to us. Y'all, this is the hardest thing I think I might, eh, hardest or second hardest that I gotta say this morning. But some will never be able to receive God doing what he does here until you have 100% clear, rational understanding that meets your ethical approval standard. I need you to hear Romans 9 which is written by the Apostle Paul about this very moment. Romans 9, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And I'm actually gonna read you the next few verses in a second. The hard truth is we want God to answer us and that's the very thing Satan himself did in the throne room of God. God doesn't provide all, he does, actually let me say this, he does provide answers in his grace. Often he does, but be careful to demand from him that he answer you, lest you find yourself in the same position as Pharaoh. Here's another observation. The fate of a people almost always follows the decisions of his leaders, of its leaders. That's been true since the dawn of civilization. By the way, that's why I pray that God raises up some of you for uh, public leadership because I believe his wisdom is best for any nation, for human flourishing. Now the pulpit's not for that, so I got plenty of political opinions. I don't bring them in here. But God may call you to that. You look at the leader of Egypt who turned directly in rebellion against God and God brought judgment on him and his people. Think about how resistant Pharaoh had been and it would take more than just the loss of one life, right? Even one or two households would have scarcely sufficed to compel all of Egypt to grant release of an entire nation and its cattle. Nothing short of this all-inclusive calamity visited on the entire people would bring about this deliverance. Fourthly, this plague had a very specific purpose. It was the final defeat of the gods of Egypt. Life in Egypt was good, good climate. You had a predictable, in ancient times, this is a big deal, a very predictable, good water source in the Nile. You had the floods that would come down every so often that would make the soil very fertile. To them, the greatest good was the continuation of this good life. And at the end, it was the perpetuation of this good life 
It was the reason they worshiped the gods they did and they asked for the gods to allow them to keep this good life. And Yahweh has shown them in case after case, these so-called gods did not have the secret of life. And in fact, they could only produce death. And this final plague is an attack on their comfort of life itself. Even life when lived apart from the one true God does not have life. It's a gift from the sole creator of the earth and that creator is the Yahweh of Israel. And this is humbling to the Egyptians who are the intelligent, cultured, sophisticated Egyptians that somehow the Hebrew slaves, they have found the one true God without even really looking for him. And the Egyptians have found nothing but death. And it's a warning to us lest we worship the life we have instead of the one who gave it to us. Lastly, listen, about this plague, I gotta tell you this. If Jesus didn't get out of the grave, this doesn't matter anyways. Y'all, I wanna make sure we don't lose sight of what matters most. See, on the cross, the judge looked at your sin and mine and he did not strike us who deserve it. Instead, the same God who we see vividly does judge sin. That's part of the reason this is in our Bible. That God struck his firstborn son himself so that we would be spared this penalty. The purpose of the 10th plague in scripture is to alert you to God's righteous judgment on sin and that should humble us and then fill our heart with worship that God spared us who deserve it. Let me read you the next couple of verses in Romans 9. What if God, wanting to display his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? Talking about Egypt and the Egyptians. And what if he did that, did this, to make known, it's the reason why he's doing what he's doing, y'all, to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy. That's us. That he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. See why he did it? After three days, three days after he died, Jesus rose from the dead. None of the Egyptian sons did. No one else ever did, but Jesus did. And in doing so, he demonstrated he alone is God. And as hard as this judgment may be, look at it through the death and resurrection of Jesus and make sure you believe that and believe that he has done that to show you his power, his glory and remind you of his mercy. And if you don't believe he got out of the grave, none of the rest of that even matters anyways. It's to point you to Christ. As a church, that's what we say. We keep the gospel at the center of all we do and it's especially for moments right here. I'm not saying ignore the question. Hopefully you've seen that and these other things that I've said, that there are serious, thoughtful responses to it. Not apologies, but thoughtful explanations. But at the end of the day, it's to point you to the mercy and love of God for you. All right, let's keep going. Exodus, back in Exodus 12, we'll move to verse 35. We're gonna turn and see God the provider. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. Okay, you remember, again, I'm kind of, this is really so much part two of last week's sermon, kind of finishing it out. He had said, Moses had said to them, you're going to go and you're going to ask for gold and silver, which sounds crazy, but they go and they do it. And the Lord gave the people, verse 36, such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. And in this way, they plundered the Egyptians. 
Now here we turn to God, the provider. He's a judge, but also a provider. Let's talk about this wealth that God has just given Israel. Because if we don't, we run the risk of this text just becoming that prosperity gospel text. Follow God and one day he'll give you that gold. Some garbage like that. But that's what it is. But if we follow the story of Exodus, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this gold and silver come up a couple more times. Again, if you go straight through, you keep reading. Uh, let me say a couple of things. Look, it's fair to say God gave them this gold and this silver. I think that's the only thing we can say. It's not like God sprinkled it down from heaven and they held out their bowls and they got it. He's going to do that with manna in a few chapters. He doesn't do that right here. No, he says, go get it from these people over here. They go and they get it from them. So God gave it to them, but God didn't directly give it to them, but he still gave it to them. That, I want, that's important that we catch that. That God gave it to them. There's no doubt God is the one who did that. Right? I, I had major on that for just a second. Because listen, whatever wealth you have now, God gave it to you. I'm not sure what means he used. Maybe you were just born super smart and you got a good education, you got a great job, and now you're making money. Maybe you come from wealth. Maybe you just worked hard and made some good decisions and you've had some things go your way. Whatever amount of wealth you have, however you got it, I know there's a whole bunch of circumstances you had nothing to do with. They were completely outside of your control. And I know from scripture, God is the one who has been in control of your whole life. So it would be foolish to say anything other than the truth that everything you have, God gave it to you. I don't know how God gave it to you, but he gave it to you. And the fact that scripture, scripture is gonna go even further. He actually just entrusted it to you. It all belongs to him. He's just entrusted it to you for a little bit. You're not the owner of it, you're the steward of it. And we're gonna see, here's why this matters so much. We're gonna see this moment, this provision of wealth used for good and for evil by the Israelites on their journey in the wilderness with God. They're gonna use it for good. I mean, God gave it to them for their flourishing and that's good. They're out in the wilderness, they're able to buy food and supplies and stuff. At some points, God provides food and other points, they're able to buy, buy those supplies, they actually, the real good they use it for, they use this wealth to build the tabernacle that God instructs them to build, God's dwelling place. And God blesses them as they build it. And he comes and dwells among them in this very precise, huge, elaborate tent worthy of the dwelling of God made possible by the wealth that he gave them. The purpose of the wealth was for God's glory. It wasn't just for them. It was from God and it was for God. I think some of us need to write that on whatever budget that we have in our families. Take a piece of painter's tape, put it on your credit card from God, for God, right? Because there's this moment that's gonna come later where they start to doubt God. The provision of wealth in that moment where they start to doubt God becomes the very thing they use to create a false idol to worship. They literally melt the gold that God gave them and turn it and fashion it into a statue to worship. And I say something as your pastor, before you think you are beyond crafting idols out of your gold, 
Just remember, we take our gold and silver and use it to fund all kinds of recreational idolatry. We use it to create the false gods of leisure, comfort, security, experiences, success. And I'm telling you that unless you decide today and every day after today that your wealth is from God, for God, you're going to drift into using it for idolatry. As a matter of fact, y'all, they, I mean, they get so remote in the wilderness, they can't even use it to buy things. So they're like, well, I can't go buy my gods with it. I will just actually transform it into a god. And I'm telling you, we'll be tempted to transform our wealth into something that serves us too. So what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? I'm just, I'm saying it here because I can only imagine if the Israel of this moment, you know, sometimes we do this in life, like 20-year-old self, write a letter to 40-year-old self. You know what I mean? Can you imagine if Israel in this moment could see what Israel in that moment's gonna do with it? How shocked and appalled they would be. And yet, y'all, this is us. We forget that everything we have is from God and for God. I just wanna remind you of it today. It's for his glory. His judgment is for his glory. His provision is for his glory, not ours. Let's move on to our final scene in Exodus 12. We see God be merciful, this beautiful moment. It's gonna be a little bit strange, but it's beautiful. At the end of 430 years, see Moses is our author for Exodus. And he's, again, closing up this part of the narrative. On that same day, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. I love that they're prepared, they're organized for the battle that they're not gonna have to fight. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. That's the night of the Passover. Another time where in this moment, God is reinforcing how important that meal is. In fact, he's about to talk about more who should be there and how they should eat it. Verse 43, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. All right, follow this thread. No foreigner may eat it, but any slave a man has purchased may eat it after you have circumcised him. A temporary resident or hired worker may not eat the Passover. It is to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside of the house. And, all right, I want to highlight this for a second. You may not break any of its bones. Quick connection over to Jesus. When he was crucified, his bones were not broken. See, the soldiers at the crucifixion, transport yourself to the cross. At the crucifixion, these soldiers, they were experts at killing people. And what they would do is if the man on the cross wasn't dead yet, they would break their legs in order so they would slump and die quicker, drowning in their own blood. But by the time they got to Jesus, he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. They pierced his side, thereby fulfilling the role of the Passover lamb, even down to the manner in which he died. That's John 19, 33 through 36. I'm telling you, the more you read the Bible, especially when you read the New Testament after having read the Old Testament, which is why the one thing is that the center of my ministry to you guys is read your Bible, Right? Because you start to see that the best commentary in the world on the Old Testament is the New Testament. Because it's just Jesus fulfilling one thing after the other. It's all pointing to Jesus. Verse 47, the whole community of Israel must celebrate it. If an alien resides among you and wants to observe the Lord's Passover, 
every male in his household. Now remember, this is after verse 43, no foreigner must not eat it. But now we've got a provision. Every male in his household must be circumcised and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. The same law will apply to both the native and the alien who resides among you. Now, this is so cool to me. The identifying literal mark God gave his people way back was the mark of circumcision. And God says, this meal that is to celebrate my provision, my deliverance of my family, I am going to make a way for outsiders to come to the table, for all peoples to come to the table. They got to take the mark before they take the meal. And the mark, put it, you know, gently, is not something you take lightly, right? You don't go get circumcised because you're hungry, okay? There's got to be more in it for you, all right? No, you take the mark because of what they have because you want in, you've seen their God provide, you've come to the realization that, there, that that God is the one true God, and God doesn't say, well, too bad, because you're not a part of my people. No, God says, okay, outsiders can come into the table, come into the family. And in fact, he wants them to take the mark, you can come to the table, because once you take the mark, there's no distinction between the native and the alien. And it's here that I see the provision of God's mercy. He has a people. But God's people is a people of all peoples for all peoples. Anyone who desires can come. Take the mark and come. Now, what's that today? Well, circumcision in the New Testament is the circumcision of the heart. It's the confession of faith. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will come to the table. The God of judgment and provision is a God of deep, deep love and mercy for all people. He is holy. He's not casual about sin. He invites you to come just as you are, but promises you will leave totally transformed by his mercy. He's judged your sin. He's found you deserving of death, yet pardons you because you've received the forgiveness the provider has provided in Christ. He is the judge. He is the provider. He is merciful. He's, I can't help but think of how he has created once we were not a people. First Peter, I say it often, the verse that inspired the name of this church. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Why? Because once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. For his glory. Then the verse right before it is, so that you can proclaim his excellencies into all the world. It's for his glory. His mercy is for his glory. His judgment's for his glory. His provision is for his glory. Verse 50, all the Israelites did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions, ready for the battle that God would fight for them Walking into a deliverance. Listen to me, you new Christians. Some of you gave your lives to Christ last week. Maybe it's been through the week in conversations with a friend, maybe a few months ago. They are walking into a deliverance they didn't fully understand but readily embraced. That's the joy of salvation, isn't it? I don't really fully know what's going to happen. I don't even have the words to describe what I need, but I know I need it from God. 
but God the judge has provided mercy for me so I can trust him and take a step, give him my life, trust him and take my next step, whatever it is. Y'all, this story is a beautiful, this narrative is a historical account, a beautiful account of God providing deliverance for his people, mercy on his people. Without question, 100% designed to point you to the provision God has given us in Christ. The hope, mercy, and love that God has given undeserving sinners pardon and forgiveness in Christ. Will you receive it? Will you receive it again this morning? Let him fill your heart again afresh this morning and receive it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for being bigger than we can understand. Maybe this is the hardest thing about following you is humbling ourselves, humbling our pride. And saying, God, we don't understand, but wherever you call us to go, we'll go. We don't fully understand you, but we submit to you. And we see your goodness. We see that you're a provider. We see that you are merciful. And if Christ got out of the grave, what else can we say? But yes, Lord, here am I. All my life, here am I. God, I pray for men and women at our Northeast campus here at Providence Road. Would you convict us? Would you give us open hands? Open hands, Father. Whether that's with our pride around how we think you should act versus how you act. Whether it's gripping our wealth and forgetting that it is from you and for you. Whether it's gripping reputation and not being willing to take that step and go and tell our friends that there's a way to come to the table. Maybe it's gripping our pride and refusing to come. Whatever that is, Father, give us open hands, open hearts. We love you. We praise you for your goodness and your kindness. May you get the glory through the people of Mercy Church. The people of Mercy. Prayed in Christ's holy name. Amen.